Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to introduce our guest co-host for today, and I will tell you that this is personal for me. It's personal because I know Dr. Teresa White on a number of levels. Um, you're probably going to hear me refer to her multiple different ways today, and it's because um, not only is she the Dr. Teresa White, and I'll give her bio in just a second, but she is also my sister in love. She is also my first lady, um, and I am just so excited to be able to amplify the work that she's doing um, as an educator to our vodcast community. So Dr. Teresa White is no stranger to early childhood, having spent 30 plus cumulative years as a special education teacher, a daycare director, early interventionist, and a college professor where she directly impacted age-appropriate development for scholars birth to eight years old. Prior to starting her early intervention agency, Student Solutions, Dr. White spent five years as a grassroots community leader in promoting early literacy through summer literacy parties at local daycare centers and eventually a summer literacy camp at her beloved church, my beloved church as well, New Life of Excellence, Spartanburg, South Carolina, 2990 Candace Capground Road. Dr. White worked for Limestone University and in this role, Dr. White was responsible for duties as the early childhood program director and education department chair, and ultimately prepping students for their careers as educators. After a successful career in higher education, Dr. White now coaches other educators as a certified trainer for South Carolina Endeavors, advancing the profession of early childhood for educators. Dr. White is also an author. She's written the book entitled The Vapor Effect, and it's, it's read by parents, administrators, and educators, and has helped problem solve to how scholars build a strong early literacy foundation. So y'all, please give a warm, warm, warm welcome to my sister-in-law, my friend, my first lady, uh, my fellow Black woman entrepreneur doing the darn thing. Let us celebrate Dr. White and welcome her in the space, the way that we always do every single week. I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can um, amplify and put the spotlight on you, Dr. White. We're so glad you're here today. So Thank welcome you. us in your own way. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you, Dr. Nika White and everyone that has joined us today. Um, I'm super excited about this opportunity. I think um, mostly because education is such a spotlight right now. Our kids have gone through so much recently. Um, and so to be able to share my heart around education is really special. Um, something you may not know about me is that I am a grand mirror. So um, a lot of my grandchildren are still trying to figure out how to say grand mirror. I got a little fancy with that one. They're like, grandma, nanny. I'm like, grand mirror, get it right. <laughs> Um, and so uh, we have five, um, six grandchildren um, and five adult kids. And so we're empty nesters. And so I have raised kids and now we um, have the delight of having grandchildren. So I'm excited to be with you all today. Fantastic. So we see in your background, and we also see on that sharp blazer you're wearing, Dr. White, that um, you are also affiliated with this group called Student Solutions, not just affiliated, but you are the founder, you are the brainchild behind it. So give us a little bit of your journey as to how Student Solutions came to be and, and who are the families that are served by Student Solutions? 
Absolutely. So Student Solutions um, was started years ago when I was a public school teacher. My husband is an entrepreneur by heart. So he, it, he encouraged me to start a business that I had no idea what I would do with. So it kind of was just sitting in a pocket folder um, while I taught school. And the more that I taught school, the more that I realized um, the need to promote literacy. Children were really struggling to read on grade level and it just unnerved me. Um, but before I taught, I um, graduated and I could not find a teaching job anywhere. And um, it, 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 was, it was Providence, I believe, um, because I ended up working as an early interventionist. And in those four years as an EI, I learned how to build relationships with families. And I knew what it was like to sit on a couch with a mom who's shedding tears and trying to understand autism and all of these different you know, developmental delays. And um, after being an EI for a couple of years, I went back to public school. Um, I wanted to teach, just had to teach. And um, I taught for a couple of years, went into higher ed. And I just could not get away from um, the, the, the need um, to really serve children young, younger. And, um, and so um, I felt the pull to start the agency to, to, to get back into early intervention. So it came full circle for me. Um, and so we, we found a building in a dilapidated neighborhood. It was really important to me that the community that we served needed us the most. Um, and so uh, we found a building and totally re, 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 um, reconstructed it out of pocket. Um, and we've been in business two years in August and um, it's, it's going really well. It was the right thing to do. It just all came full circle. That is so awesome. So you're you mentioned the words EI, you know, early interventionist. And so for those of us who aren't quite as familiar with the role of an early interventionist, why don't you please give us a little bit more information? Help us unpack that. So when you hear the term early interventionist, we're, we're th really thinking about promoting development in those first five years of life, where we know that the brain development is happening so quickly. And um, as an EI, you're considered um, a developmental specialist. And so understanding those five critical domains that impact a child's growth and development, so their communication, their social emotional skills, their fine motor, gross motor, and even their self-help, the ability to become increasingly independent over time. And so as an EI, what we do is really assess those five areas for, for families and help them to see where the gaps are and where their child is um, showing some delays. And then we get to populate an individualized plan to promote development and um, do what we can early when, when the brain is the most malleable. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those signs that um, you know adults who are surrounded by young people, especially in those very formidable years, what are the signs that there should be some, um, some urgency around trying to get the support and the care um, for, for youth when they are, what kind of signs should they be paying attention to? So really the greatest sign would be behaviors. And so we are seeing an influx in um, referrals for children who are at risk for autism. And uh, often it is a daycare teacher or a family member that will say, you know, my child's not interacting with their same age peers. When I call their name, they're not answering. Um, they're two and they're not using language. Um, so those are some key indicators um, that you're looking for when a child is not mobile 
um, when they're not actively exploring their environment is, is a um, sign for um, probably the need for early interventionists. And certainly, of course, when they the cognitive abilities seem to be a little delayed um, or not coming to fruition in a time that you think most kids should be showing those cognitive abilities. So let's talk about the soft skills that are, are needed to be able to effectively support and um, connect with diverse families, especially when language can be a barrier. I don't know the makeup of your population of, of clients and students and scholars as you refer to them, but I know that that's a, a big issue for a lot of, of families. It's just making sure that there is a high level of intentionality of, of meaningfully trying to understand the unique challenges um, that each family could experience because it may not be the same. Yes, Nika. And so just to understand a little bit about our families, when we get a new family, we have never met them. And so it is, I like to think of it as a box of chocolate. We never know what we're going to get. And so I love chopped and I love the fact that you open that basket and whatever is in there, you have to work with. You have with. to work with it. <laughs> the best of your ability. And so I think of my work in that way. And so when we get a new family, we, we open the basket. And one of the soft skills that we, we always try to present is that of just being interpersonal. And so the first thing I do is call the family and introduce myself and welcome them and make sure that they know that we are approachable. Um, and that we, we, we um, honor their, their choice in our agency, but also the soft skill of adaptability, because some of my team members will say, how do I communicate with this family? So if in that box of chocolate or in that basket, we have a Spanish speaking family or an Asian family or a family whose child is on the autism spectrum, there is that immediate question. How do I communicate? What do I do? You show up with a smile. You show up with eye contact. You show up with a heart that says, I want to be here. Um, so for me, the softest skills that we can have and present for families is I'm adaptable and I am approachable. Mm, I love that. Adaptable and approachable. Yeah. You made it so plain for us, the practicality of it, right? We don't have to have it all figured out, but sometimes just start with a simple smile and letting the families know, you know, you belong here and we're here to help. I love that. Yeah. So... There's reality around the preschool to prison pipeline, lots of reality around it, unfortunately. But this is where African-Americans preschool boys are being expelled at very alarming rates um, due to there being misunderstanding between behaviors of black kids versus that compared to white kids for teachers and educators. And so I just wanna lean into this a little bit. What are you seeing and um, what are some things that this audience should be mindful of as we just consider the prison to pipeline um, phenomenon that is real? It is real, Nika, and it's, it's so heartbreaking. I'll start with a quick story. I had a, a mom reach out to me about a year ago, and it was um, a story of, hey, I just picked up my son from school. I checked his book bag, and there was a letter in his book bag that he's been expelled from preschool. Is this normal? And I said, no, it's not normal, but there has to be a backstory. I'm, I'm sorry that you had to find out that your child has been put out of preschool by a letter in his book bag because another family member had picked him up that day. And she said, well, there had been some behaviors um, in school, some biting and different things like that, that they were trying to work through. And so what the preschool to prison pipeline tells us is that when children are expelled from school early, it really sets in motion 
um, this, these feelings of, I don't belong here. There is no tolerance for me. Um, there is uh, this idea of who I am. And those kids tend to either not want to be in school um, and, and when they not when they're not educated, it leads to, you know, this 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 stretch of not, you know, of leading to criminal activity. So the more that, that they don't come to school, um, research is telling us that it leads to them going into this pipeline towards prison. And so what we're seeing with preschoolers is a lot of aggressive behaviors. Mm. They are biting. They are trying to figure out their, their, their sense of agency. And what do I do when I'm frustrated? Um, and, um, and so teachers are really struggling with, what do I do with aggressive behavior? And they'll just, they'll just send them home. They'll just put them out of preschool instead of trying to figure out you know, how to meet their needs. Um, and so, uh, Dr. White, what, what we're telling daycare directors is if, when you're having those issues with your preschooler, don't put them out of preschool. You know, mm -hmm. call an early intervention agency and say, hey, we have this child that, you know, we're seeing these behaviors. Can you come and talk? Can I give your name and number um, to a parent? We have intercepted so many children from in spell by saying, hey, we're available. Before you do something drastic like that, you know, contact us and let us be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. What I like about forums like this, um, Dr. White, is that a lot of us who aren't having to deal with this type of, of story and situation, we, we tend to not even realize the implications of it. But what was coming up for me as I was listening to you share that story is first my heart goes out to the family and the child, but then I also think about the pressure that maybe the administrators of these facilities could be under when parents of the kids that potentially are inadvertently harmed by the child's biting or aggressive behavior, when they are saying, look, this can't happen again, right? And so it just it causes me to lean into the need for greater education across all families, even if there aren't any you know, early development issues that are occurring, because if, if this phenomenon of you know, preschool to pipeline is, is occurring, then to your point, not getting them the help that they need and turning them away is not going to solve it. And so um, I just, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on, are you seeing a lot of the pressure come from maybe parents um, to the, the administrators to know you got to get this kid out of here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mika. And honestly, when I taught K4, I had a student that exhibited a lot of behaviors that um, could have led to expulsion. And I'm, I don't want to minimize how stressful it can be to have a child in your classroom who is throwing things and biting and tearing up. It, it could get to that extent. The remedy for me at that point was to see the child, have a relationship with that child. So when I told mom, I was like, can you bring him earlier in the morning? So it's, we have some time together because I began to, to understand what his antecedents were. Whenever the classroom space grew and he got less of my attention, he would begin to act out. And so Sorry, I think no for attention. educators, what we have to do is look at the antecedents, what, what preceded this behavior and see if there's a pattern. And so she agreed to bring him in the morning so that he could stay in school. And I would talk to him. I would say, do you want to stay in school today? And he'd say, yes, ma'am. Well, this is how that happens. You cannot do this, this, and this. And when you need to do this, you can do that. Um, and other kids are coming in about 30 minutes. So you need to know, I see you. I love you. We're, we're here together. 
if you start exhibiting behavior that is not acceptable, you may have to go home. And for a four-year-old, he understood it. And there were days he would, he would toe the line, Dr. White, and I, I would look at him and he would say, I don't want to go home. I'm like, you better straighten up. And so <laughs> I think humanizing them and letting them know that this is what it's going to take for this to work. I can't bear it all alone. You're four. And if you can do all of this, you can also try to demonstrate some agency and behave in a way that makes this doable for all of us because there were parents that were saying why is this child in this classroom yeah. and so it, it was definitely a battle no i i was i so appreciate you you sharing that that story with us we need to be able to clone you dr white and put you in all these other spaces because i feel like um me having watched you on your journey um, so many people could gain a lot of, of wisdom from watching your style and how in which you serve these families and these youth and and um, instead of just, you know, throwing them away. And so I, I so appreciate the approach and the commitment that you and your team take. So let's talk about implicit bias and how unconscious bias can show up into the role of education um, and how educators could be contributing to maybe the preschool to prison pipeline. Is this something now that this phenomenon is out there that programs are starting to build into the education system for those who want to go the path of being an educator to understand how to combat um, and address some of those behavior issues? Or is it is it only for those who are taking the path of being, again, an EI, kind of a, a interventionist? Well, when I was in higher ed and I was over the um, early childhood program, we would address implicit bias, but in, in, in hindsight, not nearly enough. And so mm -hmm. when we're talking about addressing, we're talking maybe a project or one course where it really needs to be weaved and threaded throughout a program. Mm -hmm. So I just implore, implore higher education um, 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 institutions to really look at, you know, how are we preparing our educators for this change in demographics in, in the school systems um, and helping them to really dig down and, and really look at their implicit biases because mm -hmm. this is some of the harm of having those implicit biases, those hidden, you know, right. opinions and, and feelings towards different groups of children. Um, if you don't think a child can learn based on their color or their age or their gender or their socioeconomic status, you're not gonna call on them in class. You're not gonna establish eye contact. You're going to ignore those kids. You're going to uh, compartmentalize them. And that is going to hinder the academic abilities and their ability to be successful in your classroom. And so I think when we start thinking about, you know, our implicit biases, what do I think about boys? What do I think about girls? What do I think about black children? What do I, what do I think about children who ride the school bus versus whose mom picks them up in a BMW? You know, so having um, the time to really think about that and the way that it impacts the way that we interact with our students. Yeah, no, that's, that's so big. Um, and these students are eventually going to go through the education system and then become hopefully become you know productive citizens and so we have to we have to get this information now while they're in those impressionable years so how can educators increase their tolerance you know i'm seeing reports of how educators are leaving the workforce right now in in large percentages and so um that is that is concerning. That is concerning. So what what can we do about that? And how can we maybe increase um, educators tolerance? 
Okay, so here's my thought around tolerance. Uh, when I think of tolerating something, I think about tolerating being on an airplane in the middle seat between two other people and just daydreaming about getting out the airplane and, and walking on dry land. So I don't like to think about tolerating children. I like to think about honoring children. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell my teachers when I'm training, how do you honor this child, their story, their needs? Um, and so one of the things that I like to tell people, and I think all of you should know this in the audience, there, there is a doctor, her name is Dr. Rudine, R-U-D-I-N-E Bishop. And Dr. White, she gives us this uh, perspective of what's called windows, mirrors, and doors. And so when we honor children, we want them to have mirrors where in the environment, they see themselves reflected in that environment. So it could be through literacy or materials or the teachers that are around them. So they, they need to have that mirror to where what they see around them reflects who they are. Additionally, she tells us that children need to have um, windows. Windows allow us to see beyond ourselves. And so when we are in a classroom or a school where everyone is the same color um, and have the same skill sets, we're limiting their abilities to have windows and see beyond themselves. And I had a little girl in my K-4 classroom and it, we, were all, we were all black. Um, so it was just a bunch of mirrors in that room. We all looked alike. And one day we had a, a new student show up and he was a little, he, he was a white child, little white boy. And she looked at him and she said, he white. And it was like, it was like her first time in a window. She was like, he's different than us. Mm -hmm. And it's around two to four year olds where children really start realizing differences. And I said, he is, I said, but we love him the same and he's welcome here. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't really spend a lot of time on that difference, but it was just such an eye opener for me, for her to realize he's different from us and he, he's white. I say, yeah, he is and we're black. Um, so I think teaching children, giving them the, those experience in a safe space where they can look out with, in, out of windows and see other children of other cultures, children in wheelchairs, children with cochlear implants, just all of those different disabilities. Um, and then the sliding glass door is really all about stepping into someone else's culture and um, seeing things from their perspective. And so I don't want teachers to get stuck on tolerating kids. Yeah. I want them to get really wired up and excited about honoring children. I so love that. So if we could um, place into the chat, this is um, for one of my, my colleagues that's supporting. I think you said Dr. Rudine, 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 yes. Rudine uh -huh. Bishop. Um, yes. Yeah, that is, um, that's a really, I loved how you um, amplified um, her, her work. And I, I love the story of, <laughs> of yeah, we, we notice when there's difference, right? And so the story that you shared, I mean, even adults will do that. We, we take notice of difference. So that's why I, I become a little disturbed when, when people will say things like, well, I don't, I don't see difference. I don't see color. I don't see gender. The, you know, the point is not to not notice difference, is to notice difference, but to notice it not in a way because you need to start tolerating it to your point, but where you can celebrate it, you can yeah. value it, you can see it as really important for that ecosystem and that environment. And so I love that there are people like you who are teaching our little people um, to, to lean into those thoughts. I think that's, I think that's absolutely beautiful. 
we're going to be shifting in a bit and I want to make sure that we can take your questions from the audience and you can do this a number of ways. You can either be prepared to unmute yourself and to contribute to the dialogue, we welcome that. Or you can also place your questions into the chat. I'm gonna go a little bit longer and then we will um, shift over to the audience questions. Okay. And so let's talk about the parent's role now. We've talked about um, the interventionist role, um, but what about the parent's role in helping their child to navigate the complexities of um, maybe some of those developmental delays? Absolutely. So I'll say this, no matter the child's background, um, age, culture, when parents show up, children tend to do better. Research tells us that. And so my message to the audience, any parents, is to show up. Um, I know what it's like to, to be in school and something be going on that involves the parents and children are like, where's my mama? Where's my dad? Who's coming for me? And it's so heartbreaking. Um, and, and, and all I can tell them in that moment is I don't know where they are, but I'm here. And so mm -hmm. teachers have to do so much. We have to wear so many hats and be so many things to our students. So accolades to any educators who are listening to us today. I know that it's, it's exhausting work sometimes, um, but for parents, it makes a difference. And when Nico, Dr. White, when people reach out to me for help with their children, one of the first questions I ask them is, how are you showing up for them? What are you doing? How are you advocating? Because I want them to know I can give you solutions, but it's going to take a parent's presence and involvement. And so to hear them say, um, I'm doing this, or I could be doing this, and just getting them engaged is, is probably one of uh, a, a, a love that all of us have as educators is to have involved parents. Um, also, you know, when parents are involved, um, a lot of children that we serve have disabilities. And so there is often an IEP, um, mm -hmm. an um, individualized educational plan. And so I'll say, well, do they have an IEP? And when parents say, I don't know, I think so, or maybe he did, y'all, no, no, no. I said, the first thing you have to do is figure out what services are around your child. And so parents really need someone in their corner to tell them how to be, I think, an educational voice for their children. I'm finding that more and more. It's not that they don't want to. It's like, what do I need to know? How do I advocate for my child educationally? And, and Toki actually put something into the chat that I want to amplify. But yeah, when, when youth see their parents advocating for them, it gives them the agency to begin to start advocating for themselves as well. And, and while we may think that's mind-blowing at like four or five, that, that is impressionable. And then as they continue to, to go and advance forward in, the, in their grades, you can tell that they are they have witnessed that. So that now they're kind of emulating it for themselves. And, and I think that also boosts their confidence, right? Especially if there've yes. been some developmental delays. I think that if we can get the confidence level on par, then it certainly can help address and, and with the level of, of you know, appropriate pacing to get them to a really healthy, healthy place. And so I, I love that token. Thank you for um, amplifying. So let me ask you, Dr. White, can education innovation level the playing field? Can it level the playing? There's so many different disparities right now. And um, I think about the families who may not have the wherewithal, um, either by lack of awareness or lack of networks to even know what questions to ask, how to pro appropriately advocate. 
but I, I worry about those families, you know? Um, and so share your thoughts on whether or not education innovation can really help level the playing field. I certainly agree that it can, Dr. White. Um, when we think about the, the amount of children who have been out of school due to COVID over the past couple of years, we are seeing such an increase in developmental delays and we attribute it to the fact that these children have been basically in a two-year incubator in their homes without being able to interact with other caregivers and peers and social settings. And so um, the delays have really increased. But in regards to the, um, the innovation, technology is incredible. Um, and giving children um, um, uh, that ability to use technology is awesome. I think a lot of kids are tired, tired of technology. They're tired of the devices. They're tired of powering up and logging onto Zoom. <laughs> um, but um, I, do, I remember one student that I had and she, she had autism and she used no words. I, I never heard her say a word um, in all the years that I served her and I had her for two years. And you can imagine how, how hard that was for me. Um, but she spoke through her nonverbal communication and I would have to assess her and try to figure out what she knew and she had no way of really telling me. But um, one day I powered up um, um, the, our board in our classroom, a technology board, and I pulled up the letters of the alphabet and I was like, you know, showing her how to work it. She knew all of her uppercase letters. She knew all of her lowercase letters. She knew all of her sight words. I was floored. Um, and I, so I think technology gives some children the access that they need to demonstrate what they know, who they are, and what their skill sets are. Mm -hmm. So, so first we've just gone through, and again, I told you I will fluctuate between calling her first because she is my first lady. She's my sister love. She's also Dr. White. So you're going to get it all today. But what I'm curious about is, you know, we've gone through and we're still in the midst of, but hopefully coming out of this pandemic yeah. where a lot of families have had to adjust and really pivot and to change their way of living, right? Where families mm -hmm. have become so accustomed to at one point in time, just sending their kids off to school, they began to have to then homeschool, have to really, you know, serve as the educator in the house. And so what are you seeing in terms of the, the implications of, this this growth in a distributed workforce and how um, women and men are having to um, lean more into that educator role for their kids and what that's done for the kids that are now um, you know having to to play catch up yes Nika I'm seeing a lot of frustration um, actually just last week I answered the phone here at Student Solutions and it was a mom on the other end and there was this immediate language barrier and I was having such a hard time understanding her and she's basically saying where are you and I said ma'am what business are you looking for and she said I need help for my kids and I said well what ages and, and I was able to understand that it was an, the, the age group that we serve and I said okay yes I can help you know, and she said, well, I'm on my way to you. Like, this is all coming at me so fast. It's going to come full circle in just a second. Um, and so she came, I gave her direction. She showed up and she's a Hispanic lady. We're standing in my lobby and she's like, I don't understand how to teach my children. And, and she burst into tears. And I said, okay. And I said, do you want some water? I offered her water. We sat on the couch and we just started, I just started helping her to realize what services were available um, and um, the pressure 
of trying to teach three children at three different levels with a language barrier, had her in her car five minutes from my agency saying, you've got to help me. Um, and I, I'm proud to say that we, we've gotten some services in place for her, but she's not the only one with that story um, that parents are like, I did not go to school to be a teacher. I have a child in first grade kindergarten and I have a two-year-old running around this house. Um, so it's caused a lot of negative um, um, implications. It's sad. Yeah. Are there any suggestions you have for parents who find themselves in a, a similar situation as the example that you just gave? What do, what do you advise? What if they don't have a student solutions that right up the street from them? What do you advise? <laughs> oh, I, I, they should have a teacher. So if the kids are in school, I, I would advise that, um, that they talk to the teacher about their, I guess their, um, their lack of, uh, uh, I guess, skill sets in helping their children, um, asking for any resources and supports and simplifying things. I, I tell people, you just have to simplify it. You have to have some sort of process or system. This is what we're going to do. Talk to your kids and say, this is hard for all of us, <laughs> but we've got to get through this school year. We've got to get through this semester. So I need for you to do this. I need for you to be here. This is how we need to organize the house. So it really comes down to setting up the environment and everybody's mindset around the fact that we have to embrace this. It's not yeah. easy, but we're all in it and we yeah. all have to do our part. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So questions are starting to come in and this audience is very interested in your book, Dr. White, The Vapor Effect. So tell us about The Vapor Effect and um, what, the, what role you see that is playing in helping families around early literacy. So the vapor effect, um, the letters vapor uh, really um, mean five of the critical skills that all children need to know um, in order to build a foundation for literacy. And so, the, the, for example, the letter V is vocabulary. We want to start teaching children how to build a vocabulary. And so the book Vapor came out of my frustrations of teaching children to read and telling parents, you know, here's a book log, log your books for the week and send that book log back. There are so many skill sets and needs that parents have to understand that go into teaching reading and building a pre-reader. And so the vapor effect have, has helped parents with children with disabilities or children who are three and they're like, I want to know now what to start doing. The vapor effects gives them that formula. Like, what do I need to be doing? So it's a really easy read. It has, there's some short stories in there, some anecdotal notes, some real experiences that I've had as teachers, as a teacher and research to tell us mm -hmm. what are the critical skills that my four-year-old needs to know um, in order to learn how to read, to start the pre-reading. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. it's an awesome book. So yes. Well, we've placed it into the chat. We hope that you all will um, check that out. And even if you're thinking, well, I don't have kids within that age range, then I'm sure you can gift it to somebody that really will find it a value. And just to whet our appetite a little bit more, Dr. White, you gave us the V vocabulary. Can you give us the others? Yes, yeah, so A is for alphabetic, not alphabetic knowledge. And so kids, uh, research tells us that when kids understand that can identify the, the 26 letters of the alphabet, it's going to lead to their ability to read. Um, and then P is phonological awareness. 
And so giving them those opportunities to hear how words rhyme and how words, the play on words and how words build sentences. And so nursery rhymes and songs um, help build the phonological awareness so they can hear um, how words change with different letters and sounds. The O is for oral language. We want to teach children how to communicate, how to go into what we consider a back and forth conversation, how to answer questions and ask questions and how to wait and listen. And then the R is for reading. Um, and so I give tips on what are some early reading books? Well, you know, where do I start if I want to you know, in, introduce my child to reading? So that's the vapor effect. <laughs> I love it. The vapor effect. I want you all to check that out. Okay. So I want to shift now. I do have more questions I can dig into, but I certainly want to give um, our audience an opportunity to share maybe your thoughts, your questions for Dr. White, or any contributions that you feel like would be of value to this podcast community. You can unmute yourself at this time and share. And Precious, I think that I saw your hand go up first. So I'm going to spotlight you now. Thanks for joining us. You're one of Thank our you. regulars. We always appreciate you being here. <laughs> Happy to be here and I was excited for the topic because I have some background in what you're doing and currently I'm working with a daycare also and something has come up recently when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion and how the first few years up to five, some say even younger, you're learning so much and your self-identity is being developed. What about with that representation? I was reading some nursery rhymes the other day, Goldilocks, all of them, it's just little white girls with ringlets. Um, and I'm in a daycare that's black. And I have some brilliant students in there, of course, they all are multiple intelligences. And I'm thinking, what about their identity? Because I know what it did to mine when I was younger. I don't know when it happened, but I remember a conversation I had with my mom about the beauty of everybody else because of what my representation looked like. Nothing to do with how I looked and how she, you know, worked with me. What she gave me, but what I saw in the environment were two different things. I wasn't, the, the messages were not the same. And so I'm, I'm conscious of that for my little sweethearts. It's like, wow, wow. Do we just need to create some more nursery rhyme books? Do we yes, need to we start do. over and, and trash them? <laughs> I think we do need to create some more nursery rhyme books. I think one of the ways that I, I navigated that, because you're right, um, is to, so if it's Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, I would insert the child's name. I would personalize it to that child. So it wasn't so much about the person in the picture, but I would make it um, uh, make it um, useful to that child by putting their name in that sentence or in that nursery rhyme um, to take them beyond, you know, just focusing on the photos. And at this point, we're really thinking about the phonological awareness. So it's not Mary had a little lamb; it's Terry had a middle, you know, little lamb, and, and they love it when they hear their name. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's You're good very stuff. welcome. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Precious, for the question. Okay. Do we have anyone else that has a question for Dr. White or something you would like to contribute to the conversation? Toki, I see your hand up. So um, feel free to unmute yourself and share. I'm going to spotlight you and then we'll go to Davida Scott. Hi, Davida. So good to see you. We'll go to you right after Toki. Thank you. Hi, Dr. White. Hi, Dr. White. Hi. Um, <laughs> Question, I, I love early intervention, so important. Uh, in our experience, uh, we were faced with this stack, this binder with at least 500 sheets for the ABA uh, approach. What is your thoughts on that? And just to give you context, when my daughter completed the last page, I said, how do you wanna celebrate? Do you wanna go out for ice cream? She pulled out the recycling bin and started ripping out the sheets and throwing it into the recycling bin. So just to, I'd like to hear your take on ABA. 
Absolutely. So when we talk about ABA for the audience, we're talking about therapy for children with autism. And it really is an approach to really try to um, uh, garner more wanted behaviors. And um, I think a lot of parents seek ABA therapy, um, but I also, I feel like it is beneficial. I think we're changing our approach a lot to ABA therapy to be more hands on. I know so it's not so skilled and drill. I've seen it and it's like torture, um, but it's more play-based. It's more, um, uh, the approach is a lot different. We're trying to vary it, use a variety of materials. Um, I recently was um, certified to, uh, to administer the STAT, which is the early um, screening tool for autism for children three and under. And the materials are awesome. Like it would be very fun to engage a child versus the old way, like you were talking about. So I think when parents are seeking ABA therapy, a really important question is what is the session going to look like? Um, how's it going to make my child feel? Um, and um, how, how, how are you going to make, make sure that it's a fit for us? And so asking questions about well, what is it going to look like and how's it going to make them feel? Awesome. Thank you, Toki. So appreciate the question. Appreciate you being here. Okay, Davida, you're up next. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Teresa White, I want to go back to your um, conversation about the um, windows and sliding glass doors and uh, bringing that to our cl classrooms. I'm an educator also. And um, just your thoughts on uh, how we as educators approach that in the current political climate mm -hmm. with book bans and so much um, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, animosity, um, yeah. of fear surrounding critical race theory and, and things like that and applying that to things that um, are not political at all. <laughs> they are exactly what you're talking about, windows and sliding glass doors. Um, and in particular for educators who are, who are allies and advocates, um, you know, our white colleagues who are um, under pressure to understand how to bring those windows and sliding glass doors to children and, and mirrors to um, children of color in the, the climate that we're in right now? That's such a great question. I'm going to give a quick story and I hope I answer your, your question. When I first started teaching um, the building that I was in, there were no classrooms in the mainstream of the building. And so I was tuckered off at the end of the building by myself with my special education classroom. At first, I was like, I don't like this. I feel incredibly isolated. But ironically, I became comfortable with being excluded. <clears throat> and I, I've unpacked that recently. I was like, how did I get so comfortable down in that space by myself? Because I didn't have to be understood. We just had our were mirrors and it was just us. Um, and I didn't want to explain all the needs that was, were going on with my, my children. I had one little girl, she would walk around the school building with a life-size poster. It was a laminated poster, but that was her friend. When we would go on the playground, she would have to bring a rock. She had autism. She had to find a pebble on the playground. If we did not find that pebble, we were not going indoors. Um, and we had our separate playground. So I never had to worry about my colleagues looking and trying to understand what is going on with that child. And so I would tell my assistant, let her find her rock so we can go inside. 
ironically, she would take those rocks and put them on my desk and they would just start stacking up. And I was, it, it, it was just so beautiful that it was her gift to me for some reason, a rock. One year, my principal came and she said, we're going to have to move you up the hall. And I said, if you move me up the hall, I'm going to cry real tears. She said, really? I said, I'm so serious. We're so comfortable. I was comfortable with being excluded. And I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I was comfortable with us being in our incubator. We didn't have to explain ourselves to anybody. And so she said, you're going up the hall. And I said, okay. I went up the hall reluctantly. Um, and I just pursue excellence. It's just who I am is what I'm going to do. So a lot of my excellence, nobody knew about it because I was down on the hall with my own little walls. And so I remember a teacher coming up to me one day and she was like, you need to go back down the hall because you're making us look bad. And I said, oh my God, kind of laughed it all, but I was really offended by that. And then the questions came about our kids. And so I think to answer your question, as educators, we have to make sure that our children are included. We have to make sure that our classroom environment is not only a mirror, but there are windows. We are exposing our children to the real world. They don't leave our classroom and just be in this incubator. You don't go to a Walmart for black people and a Walmart for Asian people. There's a real world waiting for them. And they're at the age where they're curious. And it is our responsibility as educators to expose them to real cultures, real culture experiences. Um, but we're doing a bad job of that. I, I, I really feel like we are. Absolutely. That was a powerful anecdote. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thanks for being here, Davida. Okay, any other questions at this time or contributions to the conversation? Well, while you're maybe thinking about some of your, um, your questions potentially to come as we wind down with our final 10 minutes, I wanna talk about um, diversity and gifted programs. Mm -hmm. I think that that's an important topic as well. I know that um, there was a time when um, you did not see a lot of brown and black kids that were part of the gifted programs. And a lot of that had to do with the lack of support that was available to help them um, be aligned with some of their, their white student you know, peer counterparts. And so what are you seeing in terms of the gifted programs now, Dr. White? And is have we reached a place where we feel like we're doing all that we can to ensure um, parity around our youth being a part of those opportunities? Um, Dr. Nika, we are seeing some improvement. I will say that in order for a child to be identified as gifted, either the teacher will have to um, nominate or bring that to someone's attention and say based on these scores. And so um, there are some children who are who have been overlooked. Um, and so one of the, we think, solutions to that is to offer what's called universal screening, where they're not waiting to be noticed for their intelligence. And we're just screening all of our kids universally and seeing who, 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 who demonstrates the aptitude um, for giftedness. Um, and also um, in, in, in that same vein, Dr. Nico, we're seeing a lot of black teachers not being in education because of what's called the Praxis score, the Praxis test. And mm -hmm. this Praxis test, the way that we're testing children of different cultures, um, educators of different cultures are excluding people and, yeah. and groups of people from really being a part of education to being, being a part of um, the gifted and education um, talented program. And so 
Uh, right now, we wait until they are identified by an educator and then they get into that pipeline. Whereas if we did universal screening, if you happen to miss me, I mean, hopefully, you know, I won't be overlooked. Yeah, it reminds me of what adults experience too sometimes in the workplace, um, particularly adults that are um, underinvested, underestimated, underrepresented. It's, it's the whole notion of, well, just put your head down and do the work and then the opportunities will come. That's not always true. And so I, I so love, again, I shared this before, but I so love that there are people like you, Dr. White, that really are um, providing space and time for, for parents and other educators to learn about how to advocate appropriately for kids that may not just be noticed on their own, right? Because sometimes even that, um, the blinder of, I, I, I don't even see that this kid has the aptitude to be able to perform to that level can certainly be biased that prevents students that are deserving of being placed in the gifted programs and having those opportunities. So Linvor, I don't know if you wanna ask your question directly. It came um, through to the chat. Would you like to be um, spotlighted to ask your question directly? I'll just come on and voice today. It's great. Okay, just sure. Listening. Go for it. Yeah, spoke earlier and then since have touched on um, students um, with autism. And I'm, I would also include the Asperger's sin syndrome or spectrum as well. Um, my question is in the chat. And it's really, have you seen many training and education opportunities for those students with um, the areas such as life skills and etiquette um, development? Linroy, I would say I have not. Um, we do know that teaching children with autism and Asperger's the need to teach some practical life skills. And what an early interventionist does, or what we do here at Student Solutions, is when we're developing a plan for a child, whether they have ABA therapy or not, we're always thinking about how do we teach them practical life, you know, how to brush, how to comb, how to pour, how to scoop. And so um, it is definitely one of the most critical skills for children with autism and Asperger's to, 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 to um, um, gather. Um, but a lot of our autism children are either in a preschool where their autism is starting to manifest. And so their teachers are trying to figure out what's going on here. And so some of those practical life skills are being ignored or not delivered because they don't realize that this is what they need. Yes, the books are great, the blocks are great, but they need to be at a table practicing practical life skills. They need to be with the teacher practicing practical life skills. So I think the early identification helps and then having specialists um, and, and having parents who would advocate how, you know, beyond the books, the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic, what else are you doing to serve my child, especially if they have autism? Mm -hmm. and, and this was very specific, and, and, and I didn't disclose this, but at the um, high school level that I've seen seen that done, I'll, I'll see if I can find it, and I'll send you to you direct if I find it. Thank but it's you. something that, that I know, at least the University of uh, Florida um, had a relationship with one of the centers there in Jacksonville, Duval County, Florida, and they did some work with that. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. There's lots of great commentary in the chat. I do hope you'll have an opportunity, Dr. White, to go back and revisit the chat. Um, I want to highlight something that um, Kristen Prince actually shared in the chat, and this goes back to when we were, when um, Precious presented her question, and we were talking about how do we 
allow um, our young people to see themselves um, like in the stories that we're sharing. And so Kristen, I don't want to put you on the spot at all, but your commentary is so rich. I would love to invite you to share if you would like to just um, amplify your, your points there. Sure, I'm, I'm really happy to. I love I love this conversation series. It's like my church. It's so important. I thank you for this work. I recommend everybody I know to listen in. I work at a small community foundation and I uh, do a lot of all staff communication, celebrating small things, big things. And I always take the time catching myself to when I'm putting in an image, just clip art to make sure it's, it's not the default white children around the bottom of the Christmas tree or white people at the Thanksgiving giving dinner table. That doesn't reflect everybody here. And somehow it's the default on Google if you search for images. So I just take the time to make that. I don't, I don't want images and communication to go out there that white is the standard, white is the norm. It's an yeah. easy thing as an ally to do. It's a small thing. And I hope in a way it goes unnoticed versus you know people are noticing white all the time and getting it aggravated by it. <laughs> so it's a small uh, kind of free thing I can do as an ally. And uh, I really appreciate everything that you've talked about, Dr. Teresa White. It's so important, so interesting. Thank, Thank you. you, Kristen. I love that you do that. And I'll say something really quickly. Um, we just rebuilt our website at Student Solutions. And like I said, our, our, our families are growing in diversity. And I was like, if a Hispanic mom went to this website, she would not, she would not have access, access to what we're talking about in our services. So I reached out to our web developer and I said, can you make this website to where it can be at a click of a button, everything be changed into Spanish or, or you know, a different language? He said, yes, it was done in five minutes. But to your point, when we start thinking beyond ourselves, just getting out of that mirror and start thinking about the window and experiences of others, we don't want it just to be about us. We want to make sure that everyone has access to that. So I would say anyone with a website um, to see what you can do is basically an add-on that you can um, you click a button and it changes the language of your website instantly. Thank you so much for sharing, Kristen. That was so powerful. So I appreciate you allowing me to put you on the spot for the benefit of this entire audience. Thank you kindly. <laughs> Okay, we're getting to the top of the hour. I want to um, I want to ask Michael, if you don't mind, Michael, you put a great, great, great quote into the chat. I want you to socialize that. And then I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. White to close this out in her own way, leaving us with any remarks that um, she feels that she would love for us to have top of mind. So Michael, would you like to share your quote? By the way, Michael was one of our past hosts just a few weeks ago. So if you get a chance, go and check that replay. He was amazing. We appreciate it, Michael. You're on mute right now, Michael. I want everyone to hear this. <laughs> Good thing you say that. So yeah, thank you. And yes, uh, because CRT was mentioned, just put the quote there from uh, David uh, Onusoga, who's a historian from the UK. And uh, because you see the backlash, not against CRT, not just in America, you see it all over the world currently, also in Europe. And he just makes the point that uh, history is not, basically not, does not exist to make us feel good or special magical. He just says history just is, it's not a place for a greater refuge or anything else. Um, so he just makes that point. And I think that's important because like, like I said, the backlash, you see it globally. And I think that's a concerning trend um, because like you know, people want to live in fantasy. Uh, so it's good that uh, yeah, people just try to also resist that. So there's also counter narrative. 
And I just think it's good to, to make this connection to because, you know, of course, America's focus on America, on the CRT. Um, but yeah, I can also provide the outside perspective and I don't like it. I'm seeing it everywhere. And it's, uh, it's pretty insane what's going on. Yeah, so. history just is. Thank you. Yes, history just is. There's a, there, that's a whole nother show for us to talk about CRT and what's happening right now with that. But thank you so much for sharing, Michael. So Dr. White, we always are grateful when um, those who we reach out to are so generous with their time and their knowledge and information. So we don't take it lightly that you accepted our invite. And we've learned so much from you today. We, you have now um, some additional supporters of the work that you're doing because we believe in you and what you're doing. The world needs more of you, Dr. Dr. Teresa White, but I want to give you a chance just to close this out with 30 to 60 seconds of what would you like to leave this audience with? Okay, thank you, Dr. Nika, for, for the invite. Um, I've enjoyed getting to um, hear from different people and uh, to see um, the group grow in conversation. I've learned a lot myself. Um, but I think my closing thoughts would be to remember that um, parents really do care about how you treat their children. It matters to them. They are reading your eyes, they're reading your hands, they're reading your body language. Um, and as an educator, it is our moral responsibility to sleep well at night because we've made our children feel noticed, heard, and celebrated. One of the best bulletin boards I've ever done as an educator had three words on it, I did it, I did it. And, um, when my students will say, I can't, I can't, I'll say, we don't use that, those words in here. We will say, I'll try. And parents want their children to be pushed. They want them to learn under your watch. And it's okay to stretch them and pull them in a way that you show that I love you. And I would just love it when I would be across the room and I would hear one of the kids just scream out, I did it. I'm like, everybody stop. There is something big going on in this classroom. What did you do? Everybody stopped when we would put their work up on the board. So you create a culture around you where everybody matters, their effort matters, the fact that they're in the room matters and they're part of that community. So it's not just that she did it, we need to stop and be in this moment with this student and celebrate. So that is my final words for this, for this, for this platform today. Um, notice those that are around you. If there's a celebration going on, join in. If it's a celebration that you need, shout, I did it. And that's what I'm trying to do better about. I'm so quiet by nature and I don't like to say I did it, but I'm learning to say I did it so that other people can stop and celebrate. So let's stop and celebrate our students. And, and let's yes. hear more of I did it. I love that so much. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Dr. White. Thank you to each of you for joining us today. We hope to see you again next week. If this was valuable to you, then share it out with others. We will be sending out um, a recap as well as the replay. And uh, we just thank you for being a part of our podcast community. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you.